Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, pretty good Bible studies today. I'm going to cover 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 1 through 10. Only 10 verses in this chapter. I'll do an introduction first. This is mainly taken from Daniel Wallace at Bible.org, the famous Dallas seminary professor who is the Greek expert. First of all, the city of Thessalonica, let's talk about it. If you look at Greece, go right north up the eastern coast of the of Greece, up from Attica, Euboea, up into Macedonia. You'll see a, a big bay there, and then you'll see a landform that looks like three claws sticking out of a paw. Well, if you look at that paw from the top to the left side where the paw intersects the mainland, right there at the tip of the bay there is Thessalonica. It was in a key place because it was on the famous Ignatian, Ignatian Way that ran from the city, ran actually ran through the city from the city uh, through the city from east to west. A lot of commerce ran through that city. That road was the principal artery of communication between Rome and our eastern provinces. It was the key to the whole of Macedonia. A native port once called it the mother of all Macedon. It's the largest city in Macedon. At Paul's time, it was estimated to be 200,000 population. That's big for an ancient city. Its inhabitants were mainly Greeks. There were some other ethnic groups there besides Greeks. Macedonia, and getting up towards Thrace to the north of Macedonia, there were a lot of indigenous tribes that are hard to keep a hold of. If you, if you read ancient Greek history, it's I, I never can remember them. There's so many of them. But there were people that were not barbarians, that were not Greeks that the Greeks called barbarians. Some of them might have been there in Thessalonica, and then there were some Jews also. The religions of the city were mostly idolatrous polytheists. There were some God-fearers that attached themselves to the local Jewish synagogue. We'll talk about that issue. How many Greeks, how many Jews are in the city? We'll do that in just a minute. The author of the book is obviously Paul. It's This is well accepted by everybody, even skeptical types. What's the date? Well, from Bible.org, Daniel Wallace. Wallace says about 50 A.D. This is shortly after Paul's arrival in Corinth on the second journey. This is the majority view that the book was written from Corinth to Thessalonica. The church was established on the second journey, and the letter was written after Paul had established the church in Thessalonica and had wandered on down to Corinth, and then he wrote from Corinth. That's the majority view. Now, when was the book written? On this second journey, Wallace says 50 A.D. Some people have the second journey later at 51 to 53. So let's just say in the very early 50s, Paul wrote the book. Now I need to point out that most scholars dated at 51, not 50, as Wallace does. Here's a quote from BibleStudyTools.com. Quote, it is generally dated 80, circa A.D. 51. Way to support for this date was found in an inscription discovered at Delphi in Greece, or Delphi in Greece, that dates Gallio's proconsulship to 51 to 52 and thus places Paul at Corinth at the same time because Paul had to appear before this gentleman. That's Seneca, the philosopher's brother, actually. So we know it's 51 or 52 rather than 50. Well, you know, within a year or two, that's, it's in the early 50s that Paul wrote this book. Now, this makes it the second book that he wrote, second canonical book in the New Testament. Galatians was written about two years earlier, about, say, 48 B.C., maybe 49 B.C., at least that's what some scholars say. The date of Galatians is debated. Some people say it was written later than that. And so First Thessalonians may or may not be Paul's earliest book. Galatians might be. Now, who were the recipients of the book? 
There's a controversy over that. Some people say they were primarily Jewish. Some people say they were Gentile. If they were Gentile, they were either pagans or they were former proselytes of the Jewish synagogue who had decided not to be proselytes anymore, apparently. We don't know, but Bible.org says the main leadership was Jewish and the majority of membership was Gentile. Many of those Gentiles were loosely attached to the synagogue. So basically, we got Jews and Gentiles in the church at Thessalonica. What was the occasion? Why did Paul write the letter? Well, Paul and Silas had just visited Thessalonica on the first missionary journey. Excuse me, that's the second missionary journey, which occurred somewhere between 50 and 53 AD, depending on whose timeline you look at. There's a controversy over how long Paul and Silas stayed there at Thessalonica. Some say they stayed there between two and four weeks. Some say they stayed there for several months. I'll refer to this controversy a little bit later. One of the major purposes to write the letter was to correct some erroneous ideas about eschatology. So we'll mention that when we get there. Paul's writing to a struggling yet vigorous church only a few months old. The place of composition is where? The majority say that it was at Corinth. Some people say that he wrote it from Athens right before he got to Corinth at the end of the second journey. Now, there's two historical problems dealing with the book of 1 Thessalonians. The first problem is this. How long did Paul stay in Thessalonica at the church's founding? Now, if we read Acts 7-2, some people read that and say this shows that Paul stayed there for three weeks or so, or between two and four weeks. Because the verse says this, As usual, Paul went into the synagogue and on three Sabbath days reasoned with them from the Scriptures. However, if you read 1 Thessalonians, it seems that he must have stayed much longer than three, day, three Sabbath days. Well, the answer to that is simple, really, because Acts 17.2 doesn't say that everything Paul did was on three Sabbath days. It just said on three Sabbath days he reasoned them from the Scriptures. He didn't say on three Sabbath days Luke in writing that verse in Acts 17.2 didn't say that on three Sabbath days Paul went into the synagogue and then right after that he left town. It just says on three Sabbath days he went into the synagogue. It doesn't say that he didn't do other stuff later. He might have gotten tired of going to the synagogues because they weren't listening to him. Decided he was going to evangelize Gentiles. Remember, that's what Paul did. He went to the synagogues first, then he went to Gentiles. So that controversy to me is a tempest in a teapot. Second controversy is this. Acts 17.4 seems to indicate that the church was primarily Jews and God-fearers. We read what Luke says in Acts 17.4. Some of them, referring to people in the Jewish synagogue, were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas. We know that it's referring to the Jewish synagogue by looking at verse 1, the context. So some of them in the Jewish synagogue were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, including a large number of God-fearing Greeks. Now, God-fearing Greeks, of course, are people who were influenced by the synagogue, maybe not full proselytes, but they believed that God was one, and they wanted to learn more about God, and they were Greeks, so they weren't really pagans, as well as a number of the leading women. All right, so we got Jews and God-fearers in Acts 17.4, but we read in 1 Thessalonians 1.9 this, for they, talking about people that the Thessalonians had preached the gospel to, for they themselves report what kind of reception we had from you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. So Paul says that a lot of the Thessalonians used to be worshiping idols before they got converted. Well, that's not Jews. They didn't worship idols. Not since the Babylonian captivity did they do that. So that had to be Greeks. Well, how do you reconcile that tension? I wouldn't say it's a contradiction, but a tension. The answer is the church was composed of more and more Gentiles as time went on. 
Paul started the church. There was there were a lot of Jews that believed as he preached in the synagogues there, and God-fearing Greeks came in. But then more and more out-and-out pagans came in as time went on because Paul stayed there for probably a couple months. Then he travels to Berea, then he goes to Athens, then he goes to Corinth, and then he writes the letter to Corinth, and the letter from Corinth has got to get back up to Thessalonica. And during that time, more and more Gentiles have got saved. And so, well... We don't want to include the time he carried the letter to Thessalonica because he wrote in First Thess- Thessalonians 9 that they had turned to God from idols. So so up until the time that he wrote the letter, from the time that he left Thessalonica there on the second journey, during that time, more and more Greeks had become Christians in Thessalonica. So those are minor historical problems. We'll start with verse 1, 1 Thessalonians. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. Silvanus is, no, is another word for Silas. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. Standard formula. The peace there is more than standard, however, in one sense, because this was so early in the church's history, they hadn't had time to get a lot of controversy going. They had a few problems about eschatology, but there weren't a lot of problems. They were basically living at peace with one another. Now Timothy and Paul were well known in Thessalonica, Acts 17.4. Some of them were persuaded, were joined Paul and Silas. Actually, Silas is known too, including a great number of God-fearing Greeks. So Paul and Silas were already known in Thessalonica, so Paul includes him, as well as Timothy. Acts 17.4, then the brothers immediately sent Paul away to go to the sea, but Silas and Timothy stayed on there. So Timothy's there in Thessalonica too, so he includes them in the introduction. Silas was in other places was called a chief man among the brethren. This is Acts fifteen twenty two. He's called a prophet. Remember, he went up carrying the Jerusalem council letter up to Antioch, and he was called a prophet, as well as being a leader carrying that letter. And as I said, Jameson Foster Brown says this again. One of the deputies who he was one of the deputies who carried the decree of the Jerusalem council to Antioch. Now, here's something that I wasn't aware of. I hadn't noticed before. First Peter 5, 12. Peter says this, I have written you this brief letter, whoever Peter was writing to, through Silvanus. I know him to be a faithful brother. To encourage you and to testify that this is the true grace of God. Take your stand in it. So Peter used Silas as a messenger at some point. I don't know where. A writer I have found named Grant on the internet says that only in the two epistles to the Thessalonians does Paul include the names of both Silas and Timothy. Has them together together there. That's because those were the two that were with him in evangelizing Thessalonica on the second journey. Now, only in First and Second Thessalonians does Paul refrain from designating himself as something. And I suspect that's because he didn't need to because his authority wasn't being challenged by the Thessalonians. He doesn't call himself an apostle. He doesn't call himself a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't call himself a prisoner of some sort. He doesn't need to. He's just writing to brothers that just very recently had gotten converted, probably within the year, I would think. Grant says that he's appealing to the Thessalonians on the same level as they are, as a simple brother. He writes familiarly as to faithful friends. Now, Silas was Paul's companion in all his journeys through Asia Minor and Greece. This is on the second journey. John Gill gives sort of an itinerary. I'm going to track it here to help us out. Silas and Timothy, the apostle, took with him into Macedonia. That's when they crossed over from Troas. They had the Macedonian call, left Asia, went into Europe. 
They continued at Berea. So they went from Philippi. Then they went to Thessalonica. Then they went to Berea, where they started the church. And then they went to Berea. Paul, Silas, and Timothy went to Berea. And then the apostles split from Silas and Timothy and went to Athens. So Paul's in Athens. Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. From this place, Paul sent for them. From Athens, Paul sent for Silas and Timothy to come to him speedily. And it doesn't say where that would be. It could be while he was at Athens, as most probable. Gil says that's what they did do. They left. He meant Paul meant for them to come to Athens, and, the, and Silas and Timothy actually did come from Berea and went to Athens. Or maybe Silas and Timothy met up with Paul when Paul got to Corinth after Athens. We don't know. doesn't matter. So after Silas and Timothy met up with Paul at Corinth, then Paul sends Silas and Timothy back to Thessalonica. Now, that sort of an abbreviated version of the itinerary of Paul, Silas, and Timothy, it's a little bit complicated if you're studying the second journey in the book of Acts, Acts 7, 16, 17, 18. You need to know this, but uh, and it does help a little bit. And this might be a little bit more detailed than I should be going into for this audio, but I'm going to do it either because I do it again. I'm going to do this itinerary again because I found one in a little bit more detail on BibleStudyTools.com. So let me, let's do it again. Paul and Silas fled from Thessalonica to Berea after the church was established. Since Timothy is not mentioned as going to Berea, it is possible that he stayed in Thessalonica or went back to Philippi. I didn't mention that in in my previous summary. We're not sure that Timothy actually went down to Berea with Paul and Silas, as I said earlier. He might have, but he might not have. He might have stayed in Thessalonica or gone back up to Philippi. Next, Paul flees from Berea to Athens from Berean persecution. He left Silas and Timothy in Berea, because Timothy has either stayed in Berea, or he's either come back from either Thessalonica or Philippi. So Silas and Timothy in Berea now. Next, Paul sends word back to Berea, instructing Silas and Timothy to come to him in Athens. Next, Timothy rejoins Paul at Athens, and was sent back to Thessalonica. Since Silas is not mentioned in that reunion, it has been conjectured that he went back to Philippi when Timothy went to Thessalonica. So Silas might not have stayed together with Timothy when they were sent when Timothy was sent back to Thessalonica. Paul then moves from Athens and goes to Corinth. Silas and Timothy come back from wherever they are, either Philippi or Thessalonica. Timothy was in Thessalonica. Silas, we don't know, either Thessalonica or Philippi, but wherever they are, where they come and meet Paul at Corinth. Next, Silas and next Paul writes Thirst Thessalonians and sends it up to the church, and then about six Months later, he sends Second Thessalonians in response to further information about the church there. All right, let's move on from there. Paul, as always, mentions peace, and as I mentioned earlier, no evils had really crept into the church yet. They had some eschatological questions. First and Second Thessalonians are called Paul's the eschatological letters because that's mainly what they deal with. We go to verse 2 of First Thessalonians. We always thank God for all of you, remembering you constantly in our prayers. I ask a uh, application question here. How often do we thank God for our Christian brothers? Thank God for them instead of being mad at them? Paul uses a form of thank 35 times in the ESV in his letters for thanks, referring to thanks to God. 35 times. Here's four of them right here. Philippians 1, 3-4. I give thanks to my God for every remembrance of you. Every time I think about you Philippians, I give thanks to God for you guys. Colossians 1, 3. We always thank God when we pray for you. Always. Romans 1.8, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. Romans, 2 Timothy 1.3, I thank God 
when I constantly remember you, thinking about Timothy and the Romans and the Colossians and the Philippians, Paul gave thanks to God for his converts or his churches. 1 Thessalonians 1, 3-4. We recall, that's Paul, Silas, and Timothy, we recall in the presence of our God and Father your work of faith, labor of love, and endurance of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, knowing your election, brothers, loved by God. Now notice here we have faith, hope, and love, your work of faith, your labor of love, endurance of hope. It's a little bit in different order, faith, love, and hope. Those are the famous three Christian virtues, especially made famous by 1 Corinthians 13, 13. Now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Of course, faith is the essence of things not seen. Hope is an aspect of faith. It's the essence of things not seen in the future. And love is doing, folks. It ain't just feeling. Why does Paul give thanks? Or recall in the presence of the God and Father? Why, why does he, he recall their work of faith, their labor of love, the, the things they've done in endurance of hope? Because he knows their election. In fact, the reason Paul knew they were in their elect because he saw their fruit, their faith, faith, hope, and love. And so that's the evidence of election. I like to say this. You can't prove somebody's not in the elect by looking at bad deeds because a lot of times Christians do bad deeds. Look at the book of Corinthians. But you can know that somebody's in the elect when you see their, their good works. Now, you say, yeah, but some people do civic righteously good works. They give money to buy coronavirus masks and that kind of thing. They go to work in the hospitals to fight the pandemic, and they do do that kind of stuff. But if you examine them further and say, why are you doing this? Generally, it's for their humanitarian motives, which is admirable from a human point of view, but they're not doing it for God. But if you see somebody that says, I'm doing this for God, not because of who I am, that's how you know they're in their elect, because that's not the way people naturally think. People are naturally selfish, even when they're doing altruistic works. I hate to say this, but uh, Ayn Rand, the atheist philosopher, libertarian philosopher, made that point in a book called The Virtues of Selfishness. She said that a lot of people do altruistic works because it makes them feel good and they get a lot of praise from the public. Now, of course, she said, therefore, it's a good thing to be selfish. And, of course, I utterly disagree with that. She's an atheist. She doesn't know that you can do altruism for God's sake, not just for your sake. Paul mentions the Thessalonians' labor of love. Hebrews 6.10 says this, For God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you showed for his name when you served the saints and you continue to serve them. A labor of love. Serve the saints, folks. Find a Christian and serve him. God will not forget you. It is the most rewarding thing in the world to serve a saint. Paul says he was he and I assume Silas and Timothy too were in the presence of the God of our God and Father when he recalled their faith, hope, and love, and he knew their election, and the, and he knew that they were brothers loved by God. He recalled in the presence of God and the Father. Now I have a question: Was he praying when he recalled this? Because he was in the presence of God while he was praying. Or is it because God is omniscient, or excuse me, he's, omnip- he's omnipresent, he's everywhere, and so he's just stating a fact that, hey, God's everywhere, and he saw me as I knew you. Well, I don't know which way that is. Now, he, Paul says he knows their election. I'm going to give you a quote from an Arminian, Adam Clark, who I've used a lot in my Bible studies here. This is what he says about this election of the Thessalonians. Quote, no irrespective, unconditional, eternal, and personal election to everlasting glory is meant by the apostle. In other words, we can't say that you are saved irrespective of any sin you might have committed. We can't say that you are saved unconditionally regardless of any sin you might forget. We can't say that you are saved eternally because you can lose your salvation. We can't say this is personal election at all. 
actually what he says, it's an election of Gentiles, because God decided to elect the Gentiles generally as a group, and now the Thessalonians are have been chosen as a group of the Gentiles as a group, but of course to get in that group you've got to exercise your faith. Now, I personally think that Clark doesn't know what in the Gehenna he's talking about. That's absolute nonsense. In fact, when I read stuff like this from Arminians, it makes me so happy that I'm an Augustinian. I say, I don't have to defend this nonsense. Here's what Jameson Fawcett Brown says about this election. It means that God has elected you as an individual believer to eternal life. Now, I personally think that Jameson Fawcett Brown know exactly what they're talking about there. We go to verse 5 in 1 Thessalonians. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power, in the Holy Spirit, and with much assurance. You know what kind of men we were among you for your benefit. Now, when he says our gospel, he means Paul, Timothy, and Silas, who he is associating himself with in the salutation. For our gospel, the good news, did not come to you in word only. Why? Because Paul accompanied his teaching with miracles. Because he says not only in word only, but also in power. Whenever he says power, that means miracles. And both were the teaching in word and the power. It was done in the Holy Spirit. He explicitly says in verse 5 here, in the Holy Spirit. Now, it seems to me that when you see the word power in the Gospels, like dunamis, I think uh, you evangelize the world in power in Acts 1, verse 8, somewhere around there. The word power is used. It's talking about miracles. But for some reason, it's only charismatics that mention that. I wonder why that is. John Gill's not charismatic, and he mentions it. Gill says Paul's talking about miracles. I don't know. Maybe I'm. Maybe I haven't read enough. Maybe maybe non-charismatics do mention that Paul did miracles. But they're going. A lot of them are going to say, but we can't do that today because we can't imitate Paul. I'm going to talk about imitating Paul in just a minute. We're supposed to imitate Paul in all kind of stuff, but cessationists don't want to imitate Paul when it comes to miracles. And he says, Paul says to the Thessalonians. The gospel came to them with much assurance. Now, there's two options what Paul could have meant by that. Option number one, he could be confident in his preaching. He's assured when he preaches the gospel to them. Or it could be that the Thessalonians had much assurance, confidence that they would not lose their salvation. Now, Paul says in the last part of verse 5, you know what kind of men we were. We as Paul, Silas, and Timothy. You know what kind of men we were among you for your benefit. He holds himself up and his fellow apostles as examples which is a common theme, as we'll see, through Paul's letters. We'll examine that in just a minute. We go to verse 6. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. You, Thessalonians, became imitators of us, of Paul, Silas, and Timothy, and of the Lord, imitators of the apostles and of the Lord, when, in spite of severe persecution, you welcomed the message with joy from the Holy Spirit. Well, first of all, how did the Thessalonians become imitators of the apostles and Jesus? Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown point out that both Paul and Jesus received persecution, and they did it with joy, and so did the Thessalonians. Received persecution, did it with joy. Persecution, we're going to talk about in just a minute, is recorded in Acts chapter 17. Now, notice that having become imitators, these Thessalonians who imitated the apostles and Jesus, they became imitated themselves. We go to the next verse, which we're not going to go to next, but I'll quote it to you right now. 1 Thessalonians 1, 7, as a result, you became an example to all the believers of Macedonia and Achaia. So the Thessalonians, having imitated the apostles and Jesus, then they became something for somebody else to imitate. They became an example to all the believers of Macedonia and Achaia. 
Now, as I said earlier, Paul had often has often exhorted Christians to imitate him all through his scriptures. I found five cases of this. Let's read them. 1 Corinthians 4.16, Paul says, Therefore I urge you to imitate me, Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, Imitate me, Corinthians, as I also imitate Christ. Philippians 3.17, Join in imitating me, brothers and sisters in Philippi, and pay careful attention to those who live according to the example you have in us. In other words, some Philippians were imitating Paul, and those Philippians should be imitated by the other Philippians who are not imitating Paul as closely as their Philippian brothers are imitating Paul. Second Thessalonians 3, 7, For you yourselves know how you should imitate us. Thessalonians, we were not idle among you. Second Thessalonians 3, 9, It is not that we don't have the right to support, but we did it to make ourselves an example to you. So to be an example, have others imitate you, that's something that Paul does. And if we're going to imitate Paul, we should imitate Paul and be an example to other people. He was an example, we're an example. So he imitates Jesus, we imi- and he has other people imitate him. We imitate the Lord, we imitate people who follow the Lord. Now Paul says in verse 6, In spite of severe persecution, you Thessalonians welcome the message with joy from the Holy Spirit. Joy in the midst of persecution. I don't need to mention that that's hard to do. That ha- That's supernatural, that you are being persecuted, and yet you still have joy. You don't have anger at the people that are persecuting you. You're too busy being excited about Jesus. That's why the Christian gospel is spread so fast and so far. What kind of persecution do they have? We read about it in Acts 17, verses 5 through 8. But the Jews, these are the Jews in Thessalonica, became jealous, and they brought together some scoundrels from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. Attacking Jason's house, they searched for them to bring them out to the public assembly. When they did not find them, this is the apostles they did, the mob did not find, they dragged Jason... And some of the brothers before the city officials shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here too, and Jason has received them as guests. Jason was the guy that lived next to the synagogue where Paul and his fellow apostles were staying. They are all acting contrary to Caesar's decree, saying that there's another king, Jesus. The Jews stirred up the crowd and the city officials who heard these things, and we know later they, they went before the magistrate, and the magistrate was very friendly toward Paul, and they got out of, they got out of the trouble. But that's the kind of persecution they have. We go to verses 7 through 8 in 1 Thessalonians. As a result, in other words, receiving persecution with joy, as a result of that, you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Now, Macedonia contained Thessalonica, of course, but also Philippi, which was a little bit to the north and east of Thessalonica, and Berea, which was a little, just a stone's throw away from Thessalonica, inland a little bit or southward a little bit, south and east, south and west, I'm sorry. But I can imagine there are other churches that have started out from those centers there in Macedonia. So it was all the believers not only in Philippi and Berea, but also in points in between that we don't know about. I'm sure this was an evangelizing church, and the word was spreading. Achaia is, of course, Corinth. That's the only church, really, that Christians that Paul had there. It was in Corinth. He, didn't, he, did, he did not establish one in Athens. Didn't have a lot of converts there, but... The word had gone out into Greece and in Macedonia because of the Thessalonians. Verse 8, for the Lord's message rang out from you. Rang out, as John Gill says, like the blowing of a trumpet, the message rang out. And remember, Thessalonica was very conveniently situated for traffic on the Ignatian Way between Rome and the eastern provinces. As Adam Clark says, many Thessalonian merchants traveled through Macedonia and Achaia and the rest of Greece, so they witnessed to traders who are spreading their wares, and I'm sure the word went out. You know, it is often not noticed that businessmen spread the gospel a lot because businessmen tend to travel 
They do international business. There's always been international trade. Paul says in verse 8 that the message from Thessalonica rang out in every place that your faith in God has gone out. But this was every place, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, so it sounds like the the Thessal- Thessalonians were ministering and witnessing and evangelizing other places besides Philippi and Berea and Corinth, the places we know about. There's all kinds of places in between. Paul says, therefore, we don't need to say anything. In other words, I don't need to say anything to praise you, Thessalonians. Your deeds are, saying, are speaking for themselves. Your actions speak louder than any words I could say. We go to verse 9, 1 Thessalonians 1. For they themselves report what kind of reception. They themselves means the, the Christians who are being preached to in every place in Macedonia and Achaia in every place. These Christians themselves report what kind of reception we had from you. So Paul has somehow gotten word from the Christians in Macedonia and Achaia. He's gotten words that, wow, the Thessalonians really responded to the gospel that Paul preached and Silas and Timothy preached. For they themselves report what kind of reception we had from you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And that turning from idols is how we know that they were Gentiles in the church as well as Jews from the synagogue that Paul preached in for three Sabbaths. Adam Clark says this proves that the majority of the church was Gentile. Again, that's a controverted issue about how many people were Jews and how many people were Gentiles in Thessalonica. Some people speculate the leadership was Jewish. The, the majority of the the average Christian was Gentile. We don't know. Why does Paul mention living and true God? That's to contrast with the idols who are dead. First Thessalonians 1.10, And to wait for his son from heaven. Let me go back. It's the middle of a sentence. Verse 9 at the end says, How you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven. So you turn from idols and now you're waiting for Jesus from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. Or Jesus is coming from heaven. Whenever you see coming, you have to decide, is it coming at the end of time, at the final judgment, or is it coming in AD 70 to bring wrath on the Jerusalem? On Jerusalem, This is most probably at the end of time, general resurrection at the end of, at the end of time, as John Gill, Adam Clark, and Jameson Fawcett and Brown say, because if it was the coming wrath on Jerusalem in AD 70, that's not really going to affect the Thessalonians that much because they're not in Jerusalem. So we will take this at the end of time. Ladies and gentlemen, I am now finished with 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. The 20 verses of chapter 2 deal with how Paul ministered to the Thessalonians, which is kind of interesting. We'll see how. We'll see the relationship of a happy church, church is doing well, and its apostle in our next audio. Hope you stay tuned for that one, and I hope you enjoyed this one.